Mediatrics Radio presents Pathways to Rome, a weekly hour-long journey that brings Rome home for you. Father Jeffrey Kirby, along with Gus Kilo and Kathy Kerfoot, take us on an audio tour of the Vatican where every work of art, building, and liturgical event is a unique expression of Christianity. The center of the Catholic faith teaches while it inspires, but there's a lot to learn. So let's join our tour guides for this week's apologetic adventure. Welcome to today's episode of Pathways to Rome, the show that brings Rome home to you. Today we're going to be talking about Catholic and Jewish relations, and we're going to focus on our commonalities as well as some of our differences. We're also going to be talking about Pope Benedict's commitment to dialogue with our Jewish brothers and sisters. Just recently, he spoke in a Jewish synagogue in Rome. Let me begin by, by welcoming um, Gus Kilo, my co-host here in the studio, and also Father Jeff Kirby speaking to us all the way from the Eternal City in Rome. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks, Kathy. Father, can you begin by telling us what you've heard about the meeting with the Pope at the synagogue in Rome? You know, Kathy, it was a phenomenal uh, reality here in Rome. First of all, that the Pope would be invited and that Pope Benedict desired to visit with the Jewish community here in Rome. He's only the second Pope to ever visit uh, that particular synagogue. Uh, he was received. There was various events before actually they entered the synagogue, many of them offering memorials and flowers uh, in honor of many of the Jewish people who lost their lives, many of the Roman Jews being taken to Auschwitz, or who... Uh, even here in Rome, oftentimes suffered uh, various forms of discrimination. And so after those ceremonials, they entered into the synagogue. Various Jewish authorities exchanged comments and perspectives, and it was a very lively and engaging conversation. And the Pope has made it his priority to have open dialogue with the Jewish community, and this really just kind of sealed the deal and showed how serious this is uh, to Pope Benedict. So he was very well received. He was, he was, and, and obviously, you know, there were uh, some comments that were made that, you know, probably should not have had a place there, but the Pope was aware, made aware of them beforehand that these comments would be made in, in his own address, and, and very uh, charitably, he, he addressed them himself, but over and above all that, uh, he was warmly received uh, by the Jewish community. The synagogue was packed. Oh, good. Uh, the people outside, there were crowds. Uh, people were very interested, not only that this Pope would visit the synagogue in Rome, but what he was going to say. Mm -hmm. He reflected on the um, common spiritual patrimony of the Jews and the Christians. And when I, you know, I thought, those are beautiful words. But then when I really was thinking about it, I'm like, we share the same father. That's our commonality, right, to the core and the beautifulest commonality. Absolutely. In fact, when the Pope entered the synagogue, he said to the Jewish community and to the Christian community, he said, we come together to strengthen the bonds which unite us. Mm -hmm. And he says, and we continue to travel together along the path of reconciliation and fraternity. And it's a reconciliation, a fraternity, a friendship, and encounter that exactly it has God's revelation of his love of who he is to humanity particularly in the covenant of Moses and then the new and eternal covenant in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that we have this shared patrimony, this shared father, is a powerful identity that should unite and certainly should not divide. And mm -hmm. I think that's a very important topic in the Pope's heart and something that he wants to continue to speak about and help us to understand as Christian believers and to help Jewish believers understand as well that we don't have to be enemies. There doesn't have to be this animosity. In fact, it should be Christian and Jew who stands together in order to show the world 
what it means to know the true God. And, and another thing that he said, that he wants to continue in John Paul II's strides that he made with the Jewish community and, and saying that in his pontificate, he wanted to demonstrate his affection for the people of the covenant. Absolutely. And the amazing thing is in all of the Holy Father's visits uh, to synagogues, and, and of course we know that he visited the synagogue in Cologne during the World Youth Day in Germany, he visited the synagogue in New York City uh, during his visit to the United States. And so this is actually his third visit to a synagogue as, as the Pope. And in all of these visits, he has never avoided mentioning Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, very touchingly, he says in the his visit to the New York synagogue, he says how uh, moving it is to think that the Lord Jesus, as a child, heard these psalms sung. You know, so he's never been one to say, okay, we're not going to talk about Jesus. We're going to act like we have everything in common, and that's just where we're going to go. No, he comes and he says, of course there's differences, but let these differences be opportunities for us to learn from one another. And we can't avoid these differences. We can't act as if they don't exist. Mm-hmm. But these do not have to be, differences do not have to be sources of division. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in Cologne and in New York, he challenges Christians and Jews, get to know your Jewish neighbor or your Christian neighbor. Dialogue. Get to know what these differences are. It's amazing. Uh, In Cologne also, he said, you know, when one meets Jesus, he meets Judaism. Of course. You can't get away from Judaism and claim to know Jesus. Mm -hmm. It it does not have to be a source of of division. And I think it would be a mistake, as sometimes we oftentimes see in a religious dialogue, this attempt to act as if we don't have any differences. And we're just different people, and but we all really kind of believe the same. Now that that would be a lie, yeah. yeah. And that would be offensive to us and offensive to our Jewish neighbors. But it's by acknowledging, okay, we believe that this covenant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we'd like to share with you mm-hmm. why we believe that. And the Jewish community, like I say, we do not accept those claims, and we'd like to show you the biblical evidence why we believe they're not true. Yeah, and sure. it's by sitting there and listening to our neighbor that we'll be able to understand. And the, and the church has to proclaim the truth as she sees it constantly, and that's the way that she sees it. You can't sugarcoat it or, or make concessions for it. We see that the fulfillment of the covenant is through Jesus Christ. That's right. That's right. You know, what's amazing is if we just kind of take a few steps back in our, in our discussion this evening, we can look and we can say what we really have is an incredible history. Um, Kathy, you mentioned about Pope Benedict, in his visit to the Rome Synagogue, talks about the visit of Pope John Paul II mm-hmm. uh, 24 years earlier, in April of 1986, when he was the first to visit uh, the synagogue here in Rome. And Benedict is saying, I'm continuing a journey yes. that has already begun. And what is amazing is, if we look at the last 40 years in regards to the exchange between Christians and Jews, we see a tremendous difference and a deepening in that relationship. If we can go back to Pius XI, who once claimed we are all spiritual Semites, and he was arguing against racism of his day. And so there was some open exchange, but really it was at the Second Vatican Council, I mean, John Twenty-Third, he meets a group of Jewish delegates, they come to visit him at the Vatican, and John Twenty-Third, a very emotional encounter with the Jewish community, John Twenty-Third says, I am Joseph, your brother. Yeah. Harkening back to the story from the Old Testament, Joseph, who was left in Egypt, was away from his brothers and from his father. Mm-hmm. And that beautiful encounter in the book of Genesis, when Joseph reveals himself 
to his brothers. John 23rd goes back to that story, and he says, I am Joseph, your brother. And he really begins, though John 23rd, this new encounter between the Christian community and the Jewish community. And that reaches its climax in the Second Vatican Council's document, Nostra Aetate, which is basically its decree on the Catholic Church's relationship with non-Christian religions. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge step forward as far as the deepening of that relationship. I really like how in this document or in this letter, it states that the Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these religions. And she regards with sincere reverence those who conduct and live a life of those precepts and teachings, which, although differing in many respects, are from the ones she holds and sets forth, nonetheless reflect a ray of truth that enlightens all. Precisely that, that you know, there can be differences without division. And oftentimes when we appreciate the differences in others, that's really when we find attentive ears and hearts to what we're saying. Mm -hmm. And that's when people begin to say, all the truth I have, whether it's in the Jewish religion or others, they begin to realize that truth calls out for fullness. And when we act and, and approach others as Christians with patience and compassion and humility, then people begin to say, what does that person have? You know, they begin to see what fullness looks like, lived. That's why it's so important in dialogue, not only that we are able to understand our neighbor, but more importantly that our neighbor is able to even encounter Christ in us. That's a powerful call. Father, in mere Christianity, I, uh, this kind of dovetails with what I read, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis saying that those who are at the core of their own religions are, are closer to people of other religions than they are to people of their own religion. In other words, you know, a a really devout Jew and a and a really devout Catholic or a really devout Protestant are probably have more in common than a, a fringe Catholic with a you know a devout Catholic. That that popped into my head as you were as you were saying that you know as a reflection on you know how the Jews and the and the Catholics we we have so much in common, and uh, you know we do have you know see each other as brothers even despite the, the doctrinal dogmatic differences that we do have, um, but that we do have a common uh, ancestry there. Absolutely. And I think especially with the Jewish community, uh, certainly uh, Nostra Aetate, that document from Vatican II, certainly it addresses various religions, uh, non-Christian religions, but it gives a particular place, an affectionate place to the Jewish community because there we see a, a common patrimony, a mutual inheritance. I mean, there we see a mutual acknowledgement of the one God. And so there's this particular place of warmth in the heart of the church for the Jewish community, but certainly an openness to all. That is true, Gus, you're quoting uh, from uh, C.S. Lewis. And, you know, we, we want to argue, and we should from our own doctrine, that a person who's baptized and configured to Christ stands in a unique place with God in Jesus Christ. But a person who chooses not to live by the graces of that baptism that what should be a cause to holiness actually becomes an accusation against a person. It almost in a sense of like the blood of Abel crying out mm -hmm. in uh, accusation against Cain, similar to the Christian who chooses not to live by baptism, this thing that should uniquely configure and mark them out as one with the fullness of faith. So that's how we begin to understand that, that even a person who perhaps does not have baptism can achieve an incredible depth of intimacy with God and goodness and virtue. And it's precisely those people who are living that and are receiving 
these graces in an ordinary manner or an extraordinary manner, there's this unity that's found in this religious belief. So no, I, I think we definitely uh, can see that. I always want to argue for the power of baptism, what it does, but we also have to acknowledge the danger that's done to the soul that chooses not to live by the graces of baptism. Father, you know, despite the fact that we, we know we have these uh, sentiments of very strong connection with uh, people of other religions, the, the individual persons, isn't there a danger of, let's say, indifferentism, which kind of equates all religions and all religions lead to God and all? It kind of sounds a little bit like it could lead to that. What do you say about that, Father? I think that that is a very real threat and danger, uh, temptation even in our contemporary society where we have so accepted the belief as a culture that all the all religions are the same. It doesn't matter where you go as long as you go to church or some house of worship. And while we can appreciate that on some aspect that there is this move away from materialism or hedonism, that there's an acknowledgement that there's something beyond us, there's something transcendent, there's something divine, we can appreciate that in that respect. We also have to say as Christians that no there really is a revelation, and it's a gift. We could never have earned it. We couldn't have demanded it. We can't change it. shouldn't change it. It is a gift given to us by God. And that fullness came, that fullness of revelation in Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, we stand out in a unique way because we say, no, all religions are not the same. All religions, good religion, can bring about virtue and goodness in the person, but the claims of the, of the Christian, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, stands above all and is really what all is pointing to. And of course, our task as Christian believers is to help people to realize that, to understand that, that Jesus is this unique fulfillment of all human hope, all human longing. It is in him alone that we find the meaning and the purpose of life. He is the fullness, the mediator everything, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. We have to be cautious how we present that as Christian believers, that it doesn't come across as arrogance. It's interesting, in the ancient world, people look to the Jewish people as arrogant, because uh -huh. the Jewish people claimed that there was only one God, uh -huh. and their God was the one God. <laughs> well, yeah. my understanding, and, or my definition of arrogance has always been truth, but without love, or with, without delivered in a, in a, in a charitable manner. That's right. And of course, St. Paul would tell and exhort all Christians in his letters, we speak the truth in love. But this claim of early Jewish believers should stand as an example to us that many of these Jewish adherents, many of these Jewish believers, even died for their faith at the hands of the Greeks and the Romans because they acknowledged the uniqueness of this revelation and the covenant with Moses. And we should stand also as Christians not in pride, but in humility, speaking the truth in love and sharing people the fullness of this revelation. So we have to be cautious about this indifferentism because when we speak about diversity and understanding our differences and dialogue and so on, we're not just simply about creating some false sense of goodwill or we're all the same, just you know, different flavors of the same ice cream or something. <laughs> you know, no, no, we're not saying that at all. We're saying actually standing firm in our beliefs right. and acknowledging the Lordship of Christ knowing that he is the fullness of all, we then imitate Christ in his compassion, his patience, his goodness, and we begin to engage other people in dialogue, hoping that they would then be open to what we're presenting and so on. 
Well, you know, I think, uh, Father, in, in talking about, you know, religion versus the, the people who, who adhere to the religion, we, we have to make a distinction between the, the individual person who is our brother or our sister in Christ versus what they believe. And, uh, you know, we can espouse them as brothers and sisters uh, without espousing their ideas. I mean, I, I think back to a book I read uh, called The Secret Diary of Elizabeth Lesure, who was a French woman who lived uh, at the turn of the 20th century. And I remember reading in her book saying, you know, how deplorable the treatment of the Jews was. And she, she had a very strong compassion for the Jews, but she, you know, she was a very devout Catholic and, and eventually converted her atheist husband. You know, and that leads me to think that the attitude of Christians to concentration camp victims, you know, Auschwitz and all, uh, has to be one of compassion. Isn't it true that uh, Bishop Baker, um, the former bishop of this diocese, uh, actually visited Auschwitz, Father? Exactly. Actually, he and, and a group of bishops, a delegation from the American Bishops Conference, visited for the 60th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz death camp by Allied forces. So he and, and several bishops, uh, accompanied by various Jewish rabbis and Jewish scholars, they came to Rome for meetings and mutual prayer services, and they flew together to Auschwitz, and there had prayer and listened to the testimony of survivors from the Holocaust. And there was this time between Jewish rabbi, Catholic bishop of prayer, of trying to understand what happened, how we understand this as believers in, in a good God, a God who gives order to the world. How do we understand this? These mutual questions that also have mutual answers. And Bishop Baker came back and very much wanted to share what he had experienced. And, of course, we've always been very fortunate in South Carolina, particularly in Charleston, that there has been a mutual and affirming exchange between the Christian communities and the Jewish community. In fact, one of the oldest Orthodox Jewish synagogues in the United States is actually in Charleston. Oh, wow. So there's this mutual exchange. And Bishop Baker is very good about bringing that experience from Rome and from Auschwitz back home and really became a voice for dialogue, almost echoing the Holy Father from Cologne saying, you know, talk to your Jewish neighbors, mm -hmm. share with them what we believe, listen to what they believe. It's what they call in theology the, the good neighbor policy, that we have to be good neighbors. Mm -hmm. yeah, and as Christians, we certainly have the theology for that, that we want to be good neighbors in imitation of Christ. We want to speak that truth in love. And we want to also be attentive as our Jewish neighbor wants to share his or her belief in the covenant made with Moses uh, with their relationship with God. Well, we have um, some very good friends that are Jewish. They invited us to their son and daughter. They have twins. They're bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. And it was so interesting. My husband and I went, you know, we followed along in the service. Just so much of the Old Covenant, you know, we could see in the service. And it was such a beautiful experience for us. Absolutely. You know, what's amazing. In Cologne, when the Holy Father visited the synagogue there, of course, that was in the midst of the World Youth Day. And the Holy Father is speaking to the Jewish community and the young people through that Jewish community, these hundreds of thousands of Catholic young people from throughout the world, you know, the Holy Father said there are differences, and these differences are real. But it's precisely these differences that give us opportunities to exercise love and respect yes. to the other. And that's a powerful experience. As you describe with your family experiencing this and then wanting to share your own faith mm -hmm. with your Jewish neighbors yeah. so that you begin to understand this good neighbor policy that, okay, I understand that and so on. 
And I think it's so important, too, that just as the Pope is doing and focusing on the commonalities, it's so important to focus on the things that you share in common, because if you start talking about the differences that you have, that only is going to pull people away. You know, they're they're just going to withdraw in and and then the conversation stops. I, I want to point something out, though, you know, too. here we're in South Carolina and you said you were invited. You know, we it's incumbent upon us as Catholics to to be welcoming and, and open. I mean, I have a friend who's invited uh, Hindu friends and Muslim friends actually to mass and they've been fascinated by it. And it's it sparked some really good dialogue. We, we have that, you know, we have that obligation, uh, that, that missionary obligation as well to be open and inviting as a good neighbor uh, as best we can in in you know, whenever the, the, the moment arises mm-hmm. uh, as well. You know, it goes both ways, I think. so. It's very interesting in, in each of the Holy Father's visits to uh, the various synagogues, Cologne, New York, and, and most recently uh, here in Rome. In each of these visits, the Holy Father's made two points. The first is the holiness of God and the dignity of the human person. He says, you know, when that is lost... That's when we get Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. When that is lost, that's when we have discrimination. It's the holiness of God and the dignity of the human person because he's made in God's image. And then secondly, the Pope speaks about the common heritage and the fraternity that we share. That's where the good neighbor policy fits. And I think that first part, we can never forget that, but the Pope is calling us, as, as both the Old and the New Testament call us, to understand the holiness of God. You know, the holiness of God, that we honor him, we do not change him, we do not teach falsely, we do not betray what we believe in order to assert that we are right. We we honor the holiness of God mm-hmm. and the dignity of each human person. And then from that, we find a foundation. We find a foundation for compassion, for patience, for goodwill. Mm-hmm. And I just think that first part is... First of all, so beautiful, and leave it to the Holy Father to give us something beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. The holiness of God. That's where it all points, and that's where it all comes from, the holiness of God. Father, you were talking about the holiness of God, and it makes me think that people out there are saying, why does a Catholic pope go into a Jewish synagogue and do this? You know, Kathy, and, and actually, I would really respect someone who would ask that question, because it would really show that this person understands the differences that why would a Catholic Pope be visiting a Jewish synagogue? And really, why would a Jewish synagogue welcome a Catholic Pope? Because that perspective acknowledges and respects the differences. And what we've been talking about this first segment is we want to show that those differences do not have to be sources of division. In fact, it's precisely those differences that make us want to be together. Mm-hmm. So the Pope can share the gospel of Jesus Christ and his life as a Christian believer and the way of life of all believers in Jesus Christ. And he can sit and listen as the Jewish community shares its story of God and their understanding of God based on the covenant of Moses. So in one sense, what would seem to be almost bizarre because of the differences, probably understood, we begin to see exactly when the Pope speaks about building bridges and keeping the dialogue opening, continuing the journey that has begun. This is exactly what he's speaking about. In Cologne, I thought that the end of the Holy Father's address in Cologne, which he has echoed here in Rome and New York, was powerful. He he says to the Jewish community, but again, he's really speaking to the hundreds of thousands of young people at the World Youth Day in Cologne. The Holy Father says, all of us have the responsibility of handing down to young people 
the torch of hope that God has given to both Jew and Christian so that never again will the forces of evil come to power. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's why he does it. Mm-hmm. The holiness of God, the dignity of every human person, and the fact that we have a common heritage and we're called to be good neighbors to one another. Well, thank you very much, Father. This segment we have been uh, t- talking about the Holy Father's visit to the synagogue in Rome, the common dialogue that we, we just had uh, with the Catholics and, and Jews in Rome, and several other visits that the Pope has made to various other synagogues in New York and Cologne as well. Uh, in the next segment, when we pick this up, we're actually going to kind of delve into a little bit of controversy, what the barriers are uh, between the Catholic-Jewish relationships, and especially you know how the Jews and the Catholics interpret what happened during the Nazi regime. So we'll pick that up in our next segment. And you have been listening to Pathways to Rome with Father Jeff Kirby reporting in from Rome and Kathy Kerfman, myself, Gus Killow. Thank you. You're listening to Pathways to Rome, starring Father Jeffrey Kirby, along with Kathy Kerfoot and Gus Killow. Pathways to Rome is a Mediatrix radio production and can be heard weekly at this time. If you would like to listen to this show again or previous broadcast of Pathways to Rome, visit our website, www.catholicradionsc.com. That's catholicradioinsc.com. Pathways to Rome was made possible by donations from Dr. Larry and Iris Minetti, Jim and Jan Carino, Donald and Marilyn Reichert, an anonymous sponsor of Catholic Radio, and contributions from Mediatrix Radio listeners. To learn more about Pathways to Rome or to listen to this or other episodes, Mediatrix Radio's website is www.catholicradioinsc.com. Put the power of video to work for you. Whether it's a short marketing presentation or an hour-long training video, turn to the Emmy Award-winning experts at Extreme Vision Studios. Present your message clearly and concisely. Video allows you to produce your image and gives you a professional look that shines. Call Extreme Vision Studios today for a free consultation. The number is 864-590-9970. That number again is 864-590-9970. Extreme Vision Studios, proud sponsor of South Carolina Catholic Radio. Polydex Screen Corporation, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, was founded in Spartanburg in 1978 to manufacture and market modular synthetic screen media in North America, serving the gold, copper, phosphate, and aggregate industries. Polydex strives to honor God in all they do. Their phone number is 864-579-4594. They're also on the web at www.polydexscreen.com. St. Anthony's Catholic Store, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, offers books on apologetics, spirituality, theology, and church history to assist adults and children in their faith formation. They also provide sacred vessels, vestments, and hand-carved statuary to parishes and maintain an inventory of baptismal, communion, confirmation, and wedding gifts. For more information about this family-owned business located at 443C Congaree Road near Haywood Mall, John or Judy can be reached at 864-288-0335. 
Thomas McAfee Funeral Home, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, has been serving the community since 1913. Offering personalized funeral and cremation services, they're committed to serving you and your family with dignity and respect. This family-owned business can be reached at their downtown chapel at 232-6733, or their Northwest Chapel at 294-6415, and they're on the web at www.thomasmcafee.com. AKJ Consulting, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, in cooperation with New Way Properties, utilizes years of experience to assist people in finding and acquiring affordable housing in the upstate. They also have a program to assist those in danger of going into foreclosure. For more information, David Case can be reached at 864-430-4877. That's 864-430-4877. There's a new way to get rid of an old car, truck, or gas guzzler. No matter what condition it is in, Catholic Charities will pick it up at home, office, or repair shop and handle all of the paperwork. Catholic Charities is a 501c3 not-for-profit entity associated with the Diocese of Charleston. For more information, Catholic Charities can be reached at 877-885-4483. That's 877-885-GIVE. Or reach them on the web at www.supportcatholiccharities.org. Priest for Life organizes a monthly rosary led by a priest or deacon of the Diocese of Charleston every third Saturday in each month. Members from local parishes gather to pray the rosary from 8 to 9 a.m. at the West Ashley Abortion Facility located at 1312 Ashley River Road. That's at the corner of Highway 61 and Fusler in Charleston. For further information, Stephen Boyle can be reached at 843-763-0681. In these challenging economic times, our taxes are probably going up. In Matthew 22, Jesus says to pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So is it enough to be resigned and pay our taxes while giving our hearts to God? The real question is, how can we give to Caesar in such a way that transforms society for the good of the kingdom? What can we do with our resources and the taxes we pay to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and serve the least of our brothers that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25? Since after all, it's not our money. I'm Joe Galloway. Pathways to Rome was made possible by donations from Dr. Larry and Iris Minetti, Jim and Jan Carino, Donald and Marilyn Reichert, an anonymous sponsor of Catholic Radio, and contributions from Mediatrics Radio listeners. To learn more about Pathways to Rome or to listen to this or other episodes, Mediatrics Radio's website is www.catholicradioinsc.com. And now we return to Pathways to Rome, starring Father Jeffrey Kirby with Kathy Kerfoot and Gus Killo. Welcome back to Pathways to Rome, the show that brings Rome home to you here in South Carolina. Father, uh, I'm going to recommend a good, a great book for people to read that uh, I recently read. It's called Honey from the Rock. It's a a Jewish convert, Roy Schumann, who had a very powerful Marian experience. And he goes and he highlights the stories of, of Jews who did encounter Christ. We've been talking about uh, the Jewish-Catholic relations and the Pope's recent visit to the uh, synagogue in Rome. It's interesting that part of the, the tension or whatever that may exist that we didn't really touch on goes back to this attitude or this notion of, the, uh, of Pope Pius XII 
and what happened under the uh, Nazi regime. And there, there seems to be a lot of misconceptions uh, on, as to what may have happened. And so as I was actually researching this, Father Kirby, I, I don't know if you know this, but as I was re- researching, I did some uh, research on Pope Pius XII. A very interesting news article popped up that's very, very recent. The title of the news article from the uh, Catholic News Agency is Details of Possible Pius XII Miracle Emerge. And as we know, uh, Pope Pius XII has been, de- been declared venerable. But um, it's very interesting, Father. There was a, a woman in Italy who was experiencing a type of cancer called Burkitt's lymphoma. And the condition is typified by swollen n- lymph nodes starting in the, in the abdominal region. Now, she was, she was also pregnant at the time. And so she was very, very concerned. And the very interesting part of this article says, the woman's husband first prayed for the intercession of Pope John Paul II, who was then only recently buried in the crypt of St. Peter's. It wasn't long before the Holy Father appeared to the woman's husband in a dream. The spouse described to Tornelli, that's the uh, interviewer, what he saw that night. Quote, he had a serious face. He said to me, I can't do anything. You must pray to this other priest. He showed me the image of a thin, tall, lean priest. I didn't recognize him. I didn't know who he might be, close quote. Several days passed before he, quote, by chance came across a picture of Pope Pius XII in a magazine and recognized him as the man John Paul II had showed him in the dream. The man wasted no time in bombarding Pius XII with prayers for his wife's healing, and following her very first treatment, she was declared free of cancer. The tumor had disappeared. In fact, she was cured so quickly that her doctors pondered the notion that they may have originally misdiagnosed the pathology. I, I just thought that was a very interesting thing to stumble across as we were preparing for this uh, this this talk about the Catholic-Jewish relations and also Pius XII yeah. being declared venerable. So what's your take on that, Father? I, I think it's beautiful. And, you know, as we've spoken of before on this program, the communion of saints the Church speaks of this mutual exchange of spiritual goods, it does not surprise me at all. And and Bias XII, whose life was so marked by holiness and goodness, it just doesn't surprise me. Uh, in fact, I, I'm kind of beginning to wonder, maybe I should be offering a few of my intentions to Bias XII. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, hearing that, it just sounds to me like it wasn't John Paul II's time yet. Well, and, and then he was deferring to Pius XII. Well, you know, I, I agree with you there, Kathy. I, I see it almost like you're, you're right. I know I defer, you know, yeah. I defer. And, and it doesn't mean it doesn't say anything negative about uh, John Paul II. But you're mm-hmm. right. His time. I mean, God has a time for, for everything. And I would have thought this, obviously, the dream and all is considered private revelation. Nobody has to believe it. But the fact that this woman was cured could be used as a miracle in the canonization process for Pius XII and and probably may come up for uh, John Paul II if that ever comes up. Absolutely. I'm I'm wondering, I'm I'm sure that there are probably some of our listeners who are curious about Pius XII. And and Kathy, I think you've done some research on on this pope. Could you tell us a few things about Pius XII? Sure, certainly. He he was papal nuncio to Bavaria, which is very interesting because he has strong ties to Germany, and he became pope like three months before the war broke out. That would have prepared him for dealings with Germany. The, another thing that was very interesting is that he was ordained a bishop on May 13, 1917, and that is the date and at the exact hour that Mary appeared in Fatima. And that is incredible Mm. in itself. He also consecrated the world to Mary's Immaculate Heart 
So he has a special relationship with Mary, the mother of God. On November 1st, 1950, he declared the dogma of the assumption. Mary's taken up to heaven after her... Um, Actually, after it, after, after her earthly her life. Eye. Yeah, after, yeah. I, I read after that. After she closed her eyes. He, he leaves it open as to whether she died or yes. how, how her life came to an end. But <laughs> He wrote 41 encyclicals, more than all of his predecessors in the last 50 years. So that's a, a little bio about him. Father, tell us a little bit more of what you've come up with. I think that's a good summary. And I think there's so much about Pius XII that really just kind of remains hidden. And, and as things move on and, and his process for sainthood continues, uh, recently he was named Venerable, one of the one of the steps that leads to a person being declared a saint. We're finding out more things about his life, but we know that he was a trained diplomat, that he had a very pastoral heart, that he was also very concerned about human dignity and human rights. He was a pope during World War II, so the things he saw that he experienced during that time certainly shaped his understanding of the papacy and, and of the importance of teaching, which is these 41 encyclicals. So this is an incredible man who was leading the church and giving guidance to humanity at a time that many of us cannot even begin to imagine. No. And yet he did it in such a, a graceful and compassionate way that I think just now we're beginning to re- revive this understanding of, of what he really was able to accomplish uh, as Pope. So, Father, then, then why is it that he seems to catch a lot of flack about, um, you know, his role uh, with regards to the Jews who were being persecuted by the Nazis during that period while he, while he himself was a, a captive in Rome? I am so surprised how often that, that is said, and it really has become uh, quite believable. In fact, I was visiting a museum uh, just the other day, and, and there was a picture of Pius XII, and, and below it it said, Pius XII, who was an accomplice of Adolf Hitler uh, in the Third Reich. And I thought, what, where is the historical evidence for that? I mean, it has become a cultural assumption, you know, a, a cultural conviction that, well, of course, he did. And, and really, there's no evidence for that. In fact, the evidence speaks quite to the contrary, that we see mm-hmm. that Pius XII was, was not able to speak as vocally as he would have liked, as that we would have liked if if the opportunity was there. But he understood as a diplomat that if he spoke out any more harshly, or if he pushed the Nazi machine, that more Jews would have died. Mm-hmm. Rome would have been even more persecuted, and Rome itself would have been occupied, and even the papacy itself would have suffered, because we know now that there was there were plans by the Third Reich to kidnap Pius XII and to establish mm. a puppet papacy. So the idea that people say, oh, well, he was just silent, you know, to protect himself or to protect the Catholic Church, actually we see the very opposite. We see that actually by speaking out, and he did speak out, but by using diplomatic channels and sometimes even diplomatic language, he was able to negotiate around the Nazi regime, oftentimes right below their noses, in hiding Jews, in transporting prisoners, mm-hmm. in we now have evidence that Pius XII, through the system of ambassadors to the Vatican, what we call nuncios, that he was arranging with countries in South Africa, Latin America, to move large amounts of Jews from Europe to these countries. And so he was only able to do that because he did not come out as forcefully as even he would have liked. Mm-hmm. But he understood the consequences. We call that the exercise of the virtue of prudence. Well, yeah. That he was able to discern the situation to come up with the best possible state of affairs. And that's what he did. And it's easy 
in our day to look back and say he should have done more. He should have spoke out more. And those debates will continue. You know, but what I, we have is the reality. Yeah, Father, you know, I, I looked at an article about this called Pope Pius XII and the Holocaust, also available on the uh, Catholic News Agency. And one quote here, Pius knew that every time he spoke out against Hitler, the Nazis could retaliate against the prisoners. His best attack against the Nazis was quiet diplomacy and behind-the-scenes action, like you said. And then another quote, quoting the Israeli consul in 1967 who wrote a book, Three Popes and the Jews, um, he said concentration camp prisoners did not want Pius to speak out openly because that would have you know, precipitated more retributions from the Nazis. So, and what's interesting is if you take the situation, what actually happened, let's look at right after the war. The ones who were there would have had the best understanding. And what we find after World War II the city of Rome hailed Pius XII after the liberation of Rome as the defender of the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a very powerful title because that title had only ever been given to one other person in the history of Rome. And that was to Pope Leo the Great when he saved the city from Attila the Hun. Mm. Wow. The people of Pius XII's age knew what he had done, and they hailed him as defender of the city. And the chief rabbi of Rome at the time understood that's why he converted to Catholicism, and he took the Pope's name Eugenio. Oh. Pope Pius XII's right. name was Eugene mm-hmm. Pacelli. Right. He took the Pope's birth name as his baptismal name because he was so moved by the witness of Pius XII. Mm-hmm. This is the real man, not beyond cultural assumptions, beyond media, you know, programs against him. This is the man right. who, in the midst of a reality we cannot imagine, did his best mm-hmm. to understand the gospel, to show Christ's compassion to a suffering world. And I really think it is just scandalous what people have done to his memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And it seems to be cyclical because shortly after the war, he was praised, like you said, for all that he did. And then it wasn't until the 60s that he started to be slammed in the media through a play that was written mm-hmm. called The Deputy, and then some some more books came out that seemed to have slammed him considerably. And now it's coming back that he's starting to be heralded for the good things that he did and, and what he did try to do, even though it was behind the scenes. But now that some of the archives are being released from the Vatican that are are telling the truth of the situation. Well, and and like you said, Father, the closer you are to the event, uh, you know, that is to be more trusted than than later. But the consul that I quoted before said Pius XII was instrumental in saving 860,000 Jews from Nazi death camps. And then right after or right towards the end of the war, the New York Times, or I guess in the middle of the war, it says, a New York Times editorial on December 25th, New York Times, this is, said, <laughs> quote, the voice of Pius XII is a lonely voice in the silence and darkness enveloping Europe this Christmas. He is about the only ruler left on the continent of Europe who dares to raise his voice at all. The Pope put himself squarely against Hitlerism. He left no doubt that the Nazi aims are also irreconcilable with his own conception of a Christian peace. So... The New York Times, you know, even attests to the fact that he is a lone voice in a, in a time when a lot of people were, were silent because of what the Nazis were doing. And all he had was his voice in diplomacy. He didn't have any armies, you right. know, at his beck and he was call. A pri- he was a prisoner in Rome, exactly. Yeah. He was- and he really had Hitler's number way 
way before the war. He was talking about what a scoundrel he was and, and how he didn't trust him way back in the 20s and 30s. Um, yes. There's documentation that he did not trust him and he considered him to be fundamentally evil. And, and you know, even, even Einstein gave a testimonial to the church. Einstein said, you know, he, he was a lover of freedom. And then when the universities were all shut down, um, Einstein even said, only the church stood squarely across the path of Hitler's campaign for suppressing truth. I never had any special interest in the truth before, but now I feel a great affection and admiration because the church alone has the courage and persistence to stand for intellectual truth and moral freedom. And uh, I am forced to confess that what I once despised, I now praise unreservedly. And this is, of course, from an agnostic German scientist who came from a Jewish heritage. So that, that was a very strong secular testimonial to what the church was doing at the time, uh, which was a horrible time in history. The, the media, too, can distort so much, Father, as we know. I'll, I'll just say that last month in January, I uh, got to go with a, a small group of people uh, from Prince of Peace. We went to the March for Life. I looked at what CNN reported and others and CNN, you know, said uh, pro-abortion and, and anti-abortion people descended on Washington. Well, I was there, Father, and there were, I thought there may have been 150, 200,000 people we were marching with. And later on, there was a documentary that had been done, and they had the cameras rolling. And they said, according to our estimates, there were about 350,000 people marching. Well, of course, that was not reported in the secular media. I mean, you would have thought... That that it was an equal number or something it's it's just ridiculous and and I think that's what's happening here with the uh, Pope Pius the twelfth that that you know we love to gloss over things like this and and history is always based on on you know what elements you want to emphasize and unfortunately I think uh, that misinterpretation continues and, and like you said it's a slander towards this this venerable Pope. It's interesting because there are various commentaries given by scholars as to why this view of Pius the twelfth just seemed to catch fire so quickly and, and just spread. When the evidence, the, the historical evidence and so on, is, is so contra the popular view of Pius XII that, that he was an accomplice to Hitler, that he was Hitler's pope and so on. You know. and, and why is this? Why is this catching on so quickly? And one of my professors here in Rome, he says that he believes that the reason why the criticism of Pius XII is, is so accepted is because the papacy in the 20th and 21st century has assumed a moral authority, worldwide moral authority, that it has rarely had in the history of humanity. Hmm. And so they can't touch John Paul II because everybody loves him. <laughs> they can't touch Benedict XVI. They keep trying by misrepresenting him, but people just love him. Yes. They can't touch him. So what do you do is you allow a historical lie to spread in order to diminish the moral authority of the office of the papacy. Mm -hmm. And he said he thinks that that really is it because he goes, how can you have evidence after evidence that says the opposite and yet still this man's memory is so criticized and, and, and so poor in light of the reality. And that was one of his views. And there are other views as to why is it that Pius XI becomes this kind of punching bag mm -hmm. when the history is, is very, very different from, from that view. There was a story recently of, of a Jewish couple who had grown up hating Pius XII. It was like a bad word in their home. And that's how they had been raised and so on. It wasn't until later in life, when, after they had married and, and began their own family, and after their children had become adults and had begun their own families, that they had this leisure, that they began to look and they said, you know, who is this man? You know, because he just, he was like the ghost, they said, that just haunted, you know, their mutual families and so on. And they said as they began to read stuff about him, 
you know, they ask themselves, like, is this what we're supposed to hate? Mm-hmm. This man who showed compassion, who you know was able to use diplomatic channels, was able to save hundreds of thousands of Jews, was able to allow for birth, baptismal certificates to be given, even to those who had not been baptized, so they might be spared, who called on religious convents and monasteries to open their doors, who challenged Catholic political leaders at the time to open their borders so, so that Jews who were leaving Europe could enter their countries. You know, they just read fact after fact after fact, and they said, my gosh, there's nothing here to hate. In fact, this is stuff that we should emulate. And maybe his recent declaration is venerable, one of those steps to sainthood, is one of the ways that the Church once again teaches humanity and kind of begins to clean up this image and says, no, no, this is one of our heroes. I know what I, we're used to not having heroes, mm-hmm. but no, this is one of them. Well, this, fa- this is a good one. Well, Father, that reminds me of what Archbishop Fulton Sheen said at one point. He goes, you can count on the fingers of one hand the people who hate the church for what she really is in her essence. And most people hate an image or, or, or misconception. And then one of my professors at University of Dallas said, you know, they're, they're Plenty of people out there who say, my mind's made up, don't disturb me with the facts. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, in, in a positive way, I think the Irish have a have a, a saying, they say, you know, uh, don't let facts get in the way of a good story. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and that's in a positive way, but unfortunately, that can also be, don't let facts get in the way of a bad story, right, right. Uh, unfortunately. I, and I think that really is the case uh, in this uh, venerable um, man, um, Pope Pius XII. And unfortunately, it has become one of the barriers I don't think it has to be, but it's become one of the barriers in this Catholic-Jewish dialogue that we discussed in our first segment. But I think that people are beginning to see. I think history is beginning to have a louder voice. People are beginning to ask themselves, like this couple, is this really, is this what we're supposed to hate? Because this was a good man. Well, at the end of uh, one of these articles talking about the way um, Pius XII dealt with the evils of his time... It poses the question, could 860,000 Jewish lives be saved by, quote, silent indifference? And, and that's the big controversy. Was he silent? Did he stay silent? And then they it, it concludes with, in our own day, there are people who claim to be Catholic but promote and participate in all various kinds of evils, such as abortion-assisted suicide, artificial birth control. Pope John Paul II, in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, which means the gospel of life, and mm-hmm. encyclical is just a teaching letter from the Pope, in that document, he speaks of the conspiracy of silence, the conspiracy against life, about the anti-apostles who preach about the culture of death and spread it actively. Mm-hmm. You know? So this is a reality that even the Church's authority is beginning to recognize and say, you know, in the media, in political leadership, in cultural leadership, uh, we find an agenda, an agenda that is not very open uh, to other views, is not open to being challenged, and John Paul II, also in Evangelium Vitae, says, we have to be really careful because that can lead us on the path to tyranny when the individual citizen or the individual person no longer does not have dignity, but no longer has a voice. You might remember that Pope Benedict visited Auschwitz, the death camp in Poland, in May of 2006. And when he visited Auschwitz, Everyone was curious. Is he going to talk about Pius XII? What is this man going to say, this German pope? And isn't it powerful that our first Polish pope would be followed by a German pope? Hmm. Right after World War II, God healing our culture, Pole and German together leading the church. And of course, Poland and Germany 
that was the beginning of World War II, exactly. when Germany invaded Poland. And so here is this German pope going to this Auschwitz death camp in Poland. Mm-hmm. What is he going to say? And Pope Benedict XVI never wanted to disappoint, did not speak about the silence of Pius XII. Mm-hmm. He took us right to the heart of the matter. He said, the scandal and the struggle for humanity is the silence of God. What is the meaning of all of this? Why did this happen? Why does evil happen with a good God? And he began to explain the theology, our understanding as believers, Jew and Christian together, about this. He goes, that is the question we should be asking. How do we understand God's providence, even in the midst of this horror? How do we understand our hope in God? And I think that the Pope, as the papacy always does, with Pius XII, with John Paul II, with Pope Benedict, it always calls us back to the heart of the matter, calls us back to our relationship with God. Well, Father, that's a great question, because what did he say is the answer for that? You know, it's interesting because the Pope asked a question in Auschwitz, and several years ago, uh, when I myself was, was on the March for Life, uh, the march that, that Gus is speaking about, we went to the Holocaust Museum because we wanted the young people to make the association mm, right. between the Holocaust and between the legalization of abortion and the slaughter of innocent human life in the womb. And while I was there at the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., I was in my cassock, my, my clergy vestments, and the young people were going to the museum, and I'd sat down. Uh, they had really kind of just run me ragged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I sat down, and this young uh, person, not from my group, came and sat next to me, and she just looked at me, and she says, Father, you've got to help me. And I said, okay, are you lost? Or, And she says, Father, I don't understand. What? Why did this happen? And this young girl is asking the question that Pope Benedict raised in Auschwitz. And the answer the Pope gives, the answer that the Gospel gives, is that we acknowledge God's providence. We look at all the good and all the evil. And we know that God has a plan. He doesn't always reveal the details or the specifics, why this instead of that. Sometimes he doesn't give that, but we know that he has a plan, and we know that it's trustworthy, and we have to trust that plan. We can follow it. He will lead us. But we also understand that there is a mystery. There is a part that at the end of time, God will reveal all things. It's like the quilt, you know, uh, when a a person is making a quilt, you know, the the bottom just looks ugly. It's all mangled and everything, you know, it's like embroidery and and all this stuff. You know, but if you look at the other side, it's a beautiful pattern. We we look up and we see all the mess and this embroidery and this thing that's being made. But God looks down and God sees the pattern. And so we just have to know that, that God is there. And there's some beautiful literature that has been written about this, about finding God uh, in the concentration camp. Mm. Well, Father, I, I think the question was posed and answered by God in the Old Testament with uh, the book of Job, when Job, you know, was, hey, how, how come all this is happening? And God said, well, where were you when, when I, you know, I, I made the heavens and the earth? Where were you? You know, who, man, who are you to advise me? You know, and, and ultimately, you're right. It's a mystery, and we won't know until the consummation of the world and, and when all things will be revealed. And isn't it powerful at the end of the book of Job? I think the end of the book of Job, the point that Job makes, is the reason for the whole book. Job says at the end, after God challenges Job back and gives his explanation, Job looks and says, In the past, my ears had only heard of you, but now my eyes see you. 
And that's the act of faith. And I think that the definitive answer to the question was given on Calvary. Hmm. When Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the Son of God, died, and on the third day he rose in glory. Death no longer has the last word. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> yes. Yes. And he wants to win in our lives. Yeah. As he won, the, as he won in the life of Pius XII, as he, he won in the life of John Paul II, as he won in the life of all the martyrs and the holy men and women in the concentration camps and the horror of World War II, God continues to win, and he wants to win in our lives. And that's why we seek to know our Jewish neighbors. That's why we seek to know each other. That's why we seek to understand who God is and who he has revealed himself to be and that fullness in Jesus Christ. Amen. Because God wants to win. Well, that, that about does it for today's segment of Pathways to Rome. I hope you've enjoyed our show talking about Jewish-Catholic relationships and our bridging the gap and, and opening and opening dialogue with one another. We thank you for joining us, and we hope you join us again on another episode of Pathways to Rome. Father, will you please give us a blessing before we leave? The Lord be with you. And also with you. And also with you. And now, Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks, Thanks be, to God. be to God. You've been listening to Pathways to Rome, starring Father Jeffrey Kirby, along with Kathy Kerfoot and Gus Killo. Pathways to Rome is a Mediatrix radio production and can be heard weekly at this time. For more information about this show, or if you would like to listen to previous broadcasts, visit our website, www.catholicradionsc.com. That's CatholicRadioinsc.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Pathways to Rome was made possible by donations from Dr. Larry and Iris Minetti, Jim and Jan Carino, Donald and Marilyn Reichert, an anonymous sponsor of Catholic Radio, and contributions from Mediatrics Radio listeners. To learn more about Pathways to Rome or to listen to this or other episodes, Mediatrix Radio's website is www.catholicradioinsc.com. The Catholic Shop, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, has baptismal, communion, confirmation, and wedding gifts, and offers books on apologetics, spirituality, theology, and church history to assist adults and children in their faith formation. They also provide sacred vessels, vestments, and Italian hand-carved statuary to parishes. For more information about this family-owned business, located at 180 North Dean Street, Suite 103 in downtown Spartanburg, John or Judy can be reached at 864-585-2667. Polydex Screen Corporation, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, was founded in Spartanburg in 1978 to manufacture and market modular synthetic screen media in North America, serving the gold, copper, phosphate, and aggregate industries Polydex strives to honor God in all they do. Their phone number is 864-579-4594. They're also on the web at www.polydexscreen.com. 
AKJ Consulting, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, in cooperation with New Way Properties, utilizes years of experience to assist people in finding and acquiring affordable housing in the upstate. They also have a program to assist those in danger of going into foreclosure. For more information, David Case can be reached at 864-430-4877. That's 864-430-4877.